exploring faith journeys, and sharing inspiring ministries that embody the good news of God. You are listening to The Cumberland Road. I am your host, TJ Melanoski. An ordained elder and the former editor of the Cumberland Presbyterian Magazine, my guest is Mark Davis. In our conversation, Mark talks about the impact of receiving unconditional love and acceptance from the church all throughout his life, and how the ministry of Jesus is shaping his understanding of the treatment of others. You are listening to the Cumberland Road Podcast, and here is my conversation with Mark Davis. Well, hello, Mark Davis, and welcome to the Cumberland Road Podcast. Hey, TJ, how are you doing? If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to start with a story and then let you finish it. But it was something that you you had um, shown me in the treatment of other people that has left quite an impression on me. Years ago, you and I were working together at the Cumberland Presbyterian Denominational Headquarters. And it was a fairly early one morning before the office actually opened, and I was going to go out the back doors. And when I went to hit the crash bar, the door wouldn't open. I thought, well, that's strange. So I walked around the building, and I discovered that uh, there was an awning there. And uh, there were two young people, a young couple, that had uh, found it as a place to rest overnight. And they were in transit. And I talked to him for a few minutes. And then I went back inside and talked to you. And you had said, well, I want to meet him. And uh, we went out there together. And um, you treated them like old friends, even though you'd never met them before. And what really stuck with me is um, the four of us walked down to the Waffle House, which is just down from the office. And you took them out for breakfast. And the four of us sat there and you, you just asked questions. You spent time. You were intrigued in hearing where they had come from and where they were going and how they got to Memphis. And that really, really made an impression on me because there was so many other ways to approach uh, two strangers. And you approached it in the most uh, welcoming and hospitable way for a first encounter. And I've remembered that over, and it's been several years since that happened. Yeah, that was, that was a pretty interesting morning, as I recall. They were, you know, they were, they were interesting people. Um, I, I do recall uh, sitting in the, where was the Waffle House, uh, and, and talking to them, and, uh, you know, everybody, everybody has stories and, uh, I, it just felt like we connected with them. Um, my recollection is, as you say, we, we, uh, uh, got them some breakfast. They had not eaten in a while. Uh, uh, one of us had asked if they were hungry and they said, yeah, and let's, let's go over to the Waffle House and got them a good breakfast and, and they ate them. They, quite a bit, uh, which was fine, which was fine. And, uh, um, had interesting stories to tell. And, um, you know, I, I think in, within the context of this podcast, uh, I think that's the kind of thing that, uh, um, comes from being reared in the church, reared in the, the Christian church. Um, certainly it's possible and, and does happen for people of other faiths to do that kind of thing. But, uh, for us, uh, that's, I think that was an expression of our faith, whether we thought of it that way or not. Uh, and frankly, I wasn't thinking of it that way when we, when we went, uh, with those folks, um, it was just, here are two people who were 
uh, without a home. Uh, they were, uh, you know, they were out <laughs> without a place to go to, uh, without uh, good food. And uh, it just, it felt like the right thing to do. Does that um, that expression of of uh, grace and and love that you share with these two strangers does that come naturally to you? I, I was just in awe because there was just so many different ways of of approaching uh, these two people, two young people, and um, I I don't I learned and I was enriched by that experience and. I I meet strangers. Uh, there are some that just have the gift who are able to encounter and approach anybody and strike up a conversation, and that's how it fell in with you. Is it is that always the case? Well, I, fr- frankly, I'm not a uh, I'm not a real gregarious sort of person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, um, you know some people, and and I've often wished I were more outgoing than I am. I'm, I'm uh, for whatever reasons, am not. But uh, there have been a number of times when I found myself in a similar situation to that. And uh, there is something in me that wants to reach out. And uh, it's, it's um, you know, I, I work with um, a Room in the Inn there in Memphis while we were in Memphis. Uh, and met some really interesting people. I hope that it, it's not a lot of selfishness involved because it's really, to me, uh, I guess one of the first things that comes to mind, unless, unless the person is just really in a terrible situation to begin with, uh, generally you're talking about people who are uh, without a home or, or without good food, things that can be addressed uh, relatively easily, depending on the circumstances, and and almost always they've got interesting stories, um, stories that that are so different from the stories of the people that I normally hang out with. Um, so I, I I enjoy doing that, and uh, I think it I think it's something we're called to do anyway. Well, Mark Davis, you served the Cumberland Presbyterian Church at a denominational level for, what, nine, ten years as um, the communications team leader. Right. And with a main focus or a big focus on uh, being the editor of one of the denomination's publications. Uh, that's the, correct. The, yeah, the Cumberland Presbyterian. I, I know there's more to you than that, but that's when I first got, got to meet you. Um, how was that experience? How did you fall into that role? Well, uh, I had uh, recently retired from uh, 25 years with Nike, sportswear company, sports and fitness company, and had intended to stay retired, really. Um, but this opportunity came along. I, at the time, I was also serving on the uh, board of trustees for the seminary, uh, MTS. Um, and one of my lifelong passions has been writing. I love to read and, uh, uh, I enjoy writing. I'm not that good at it. Um, did some writing, uh, as part of a, uh, well, lived off my writing somewhat, uh, back before I even went to work for Nike, got married and figured out pretty quick that you can't support a family on a nickel word. So, so that sort of went by the wayside. Anyway, somebody who knew that uh, about my uh, love for writing, love for the language, uh, called me and said, hey, they're looking for somebody um, on the communications ministry team with the ministry council. And that just, that felt like a call from God. Frankly, it felt like, gosh, here I have finished. I thought I had finished my working life and um, doing stuff that 
uh, I was able to raise a family with and things that I enjoyed, but it wasn't the thing that I enjoyed most or, or mm. a lot more. Uh, so it, it felt like a call, really. And as, as you know, and probably most of the people that listen to this podcast know, uh, when you hear a call from God, uh, it's just, it's best not to not listen to it. <laughs> it's best not to ignore it. So, right. yes, I, I took that position and uh, it was, uh, and actually it was nine years. Um, it was, I, I enjoyed doing it. There were uh, a lot of disappointments. Um, there were a lot of triumphs, I felt. Um, there were some things that, uh, frankly, mistakes that I made that uh, uh, in approaching the position, things that dreams that I had for the job that didn't, frankly, that didn't sync up with other people's dreams. Uh, and that didn't make, you know, that didn't make their dreams wrong <laughs> or in mine right. It just, uh, um, but I did enjoy it. And I, I really enjoyed working with the ministry council. There was, uh, at that time, and, I, and I'm sure that's still the case, there were some really, really fine people uh, to work with, people who I think knew what the ministry of the church should be. And I worked very hard, very hard and very selflessly to advance uh, that ministry. You had used the word earlier, uh, the call. Mark, you grew up in a Christian household. And if you would talk for a few minutes about that, uh, about your dad, uh, being a minister and the influences and I don't want to speak for you, but, um, you know, what was it like growing up in a house that was Christian household and, you know, a diehard Cumberland Presbyterian and, and, a, and a minister? Um, how did you have any chance of it <laughs> escaping? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Actually, there was no escaping. Uh, yeah, uh, my dad went to what was then just the Carmel Presbyterian Seminary. It was at Bethel. Um, and his first real pastor was in Newburgh, Tennessee. And I, I don't think that they had been there very long uh, when I came along. Well, actually, I was born in Memphis. They, he was uh, uh, offered a job as, I believe it was director of youth work at the time, um, or, or something to do with youth ministries at the time. And um, they, my dad and mom uh, moved to Memphis about three months before I was born. And uh, so I lived, lived there until much later. Um, Grew up in the uh, Park Avenue and Whitehaven churches, uh, neither of which are extant anymore. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if there's any significance there or not. But um, <laughs> my my dad wound up. He he did a lot of uh, work uh, with youth, and eventually worked his way up. Or I don't want to say worked his way up, but. Uh, became the executive uh, secretary of the Board of Christian Education, a uh, job that he thoroughly enjoyed, I think, for the most part. Uh, my mother uh, was very active in CPW, Church Women United, um, and some other organizations, similar organizations. So, again, there wasn't really any getting away from it. And I, I honestly don't recall wanting to get away from it until I was, you know, in my mid to late teens. And I think that's probably, I hope that's probably a fairly common thing for most teens. I don't, I don't know, but it was for me. Uh, there came a period when, um, you know, I was, I was ready to get away from the church. Uh, 
or maybe not ready to get away from the church, but when it became less important to me than, than other things. Both my mother and father were very active in the civil rights movement uh, in the 60s, uh, very active in uh, uh, my mother in particular, active in the uh, uh, civil rights movement in Memphis. She was, she and two or three of her uh, colleagues from the Church of Women United organization went, actually went to meet with the mayor of Memphis during the sanitation worker strike when things were really on edge, trying to persuade him to accede to some of the demands that the uh, sanitation workers were making. They, uh, this guy was, um, I guess, well, he was a jerk. And uh, I think history has would say that he was pretty much responsible for what all happened in Memphis during that. But she she was very active in that. Uh, I myself, uh, along with my parents, were quite active in the uh, uh, anti-war movement of the late 60s, early 70s. And all of that, all of that sprang from uh, just my understanding of what it's what it means to be a Christian. So um stayed uh, active in the church, I guess really until uh, I went went to college, went to Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I at least I hope like a lot of people, I sort of sort of drifted away from the church for a while. Uh, when I got back to Memphis, um, still, Still wasn't that interested in, in going back to church. Uh, I had, I had uh, through, through the coursework that I'd done, through a lot of reading and just maturing that I'd done, I felt like it wasn't necessarily the case, but I felt like the church was not really what I felt it should be. Uh, sometime around there, I was living in Memphis, and sometime around in there, a group of uh, People got together. Uh, they were out of the White Haven Church. Got together, Eugene Warren and Rosemary Warren among them. Uh, I think they were really the primary drivers. Had an idea for a new church in Memphis and uh, invited me among other people. And I remember very well sitting in their living room talking about what we felt like church could be. And everything that I was hearing was great. Um, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, I, we didn't really call it welcoming then, but uh, that's what, that was the message, was that uh, this church was going to be a place that was inclusive of everyone, regardless of who they were, of what their life story was. And uh, that was that was uh, how the Germantown Church got started. So uh, um, when I got started, I, I started going back to church. Uh, I was a charter member there, and uh, was eventually uh, became was ordained as an elder in that church, and continued regular attendance there until we moved. Until I retired the second time, and we moved. <laughs> uh, so now I've forgotten whether that answers your question or not. <laughs> no, but it was uh, that was really more autobiographical than anything. But uh, the the thread throughout all of that um, was that the church, from the time you know I was shown such love and sh such acceptance as a child, uh, and on up through my teen years, and even in my young adult years when. When I drifted away from the church, the church didn't drift away from me. Mm. And um, again, found in the Germantown congregation, especially. And, I, and I'm quite sure there are many other CP congregations like that. Uh, they're not unique in that respect, but found a level of love and, and acceptance, regardless of of things that I had done, of things that I had said, of opinions that I held, of interpretations that, that uh, I, I, I clung to. And so that was the common thread. 
was mm-hmm. this Christian faith uh, that taught me that the importance of seeing every individual, every individual as my equal, uh, you know, as, as uh, children of God, every individual as a child of God and, and just as worthy of love and acceptance uh, of the kind of love and acceptance that I've been shown. Well, looking at the Christian faith and, and over the course of your teenage years and adulthood, what else about the Christian faith that just keeps drawing you back? Because some of the examples that you gave, Mark, um, historically, we as a church, we don't always exemplify the best features, our best gifts, our best offerings. And in those times and places, what is it about that Christian faith that just keeps drawing you to where you haven't wiped your hands and said, I'm done, that this is the home, this is the family for me? Well, I tell you, TJ, I think it's um, the point that I've come to is that we've got uh, we've got a man, Jesus Christ, who um, I guess the way I look at it uh, is the way. Uh, here is a man who lived a life that uh, is the kind of life I want to live. And there's everything about it, everything about his life is, is something worth emulating, mm-hmm. trying to emulate. So it's, it's, it's not about, uh, in my mind, it's, it's not about, I think, what people think of as doctrine and rules and, uh, and bylaws and, and all that kind of stuff. It's about living a life as closely to the kind of life that Jesus Christ lived as possible. And you know, I don't have to recite all the stories uh, in the New Testament that, that uh, tell you how he lived. But um, um, so in a way, it's not, it's not the church itself that draws me back as much as it is that here is a group of people who, um, to one extent or another, feel the same way I do about this man that we read about in the New Testament. I find the teachings of Jesus so challenging. And, and many times in my life, uh, it puts me off. It, and it puts me off in a way because it's hard for me. I'm too selfish. I think humans are too selfish. And then we have this Jesus who is selfless. And when I do comparisons, I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got, you know, it's too much. It's too much. But yet I'm drawn to it at the same time. It's it's almost like a challenge that I, I, in my discouragement, I'm still intrigued to try and, and to treat others that way and love others that way, even knowing that it will be imperfect in its its um, output in its attempt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm far from being a, uh, a even a good uh, <laughs> emulator of of uh, Christ. But I guess to your point, there is something about. Well, put it this way: I look at the things that he did the way that he lived, and I cannot find anything negative about it. You know, I cannot find anything wrong with that. And and I think about um, this whole concept of of, uh, love others the way you love yourself. Uh, Well, that doesn't always work because sometimes we don't love ourselves as we should. But Ever since I was a child, um, of course, if you're if you're raised as a Christian, 
uh, raised in a Christian family, uh, you hear, you know, love, 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 love conquers all. Uh, we need to love one another. But ever, ever since I was a child, I remember having this kind of fantasy that, well, gosh, if everybody really loved each other, then there would be no problems at all. I mean, if they really loved each other and loved and, and um, lived out that love, there would be no wars, there would be no homelessness, there would be no famine, there would be um, uh, or, or no hunger. Um, you know, and, and uh, now in my 60s, I realized that uh, while that's a that's a great idea, and I still believe that it's it's a perfect world is hardly uh, something that is going to happen next week, most likely. But um, I, I I just can't I can't see where there's anything wrong with that logic. Mm -hmm. From a logical perspective, there's nothing wrong with that logic. Yeah. Well, looking over the course of your life, Mark, when when have you felt closest to God? Uh, you know, was there a particular experience or is it uh, something that can be replicated? Share with me a, when you feel the closest to God in the presence and whatever that presence means for you. Gosh, that, that one's kind of a hard one. I think most of us have known somebody, know of somebody who has had a... Um, you know, quote, religious experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the moment they, quote, got saved or whatever. Um, and honestly, I, I don't know that I've ever had a moment, a single moment that stands out among all others. I can tell you that, that uh, there have been many, many, many times when I've felt the presence of God. Um, I've felt the presence of God. Uh, well, the example that you opened the podcast with, situations like that, sitting down with somebody who is a complete stranger, and particularly if it's a complete stranger who is uh, um, in some way struggling in, in, in a way that I'm able to help with somehow. And there have been many, many situations like that. Um, I've, I've really felt the presence of God in nature. Uh, now that, you know, that's going <laughs> to be alarms for a lot of people, perhaps. But uh, I have always been um, just have a great love for the outdoors. I have spent, you know, countless hours. Uh, in in wildernesses here and there. Um, well, let me let me pause you for for a moment. Sure. For for those who may have hesitation with feeling the presence of God in nature, I, I think we have to take into account when when you or someone says that that nature, whether that's in a wooded area or hills or the beach, an island, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. it addresses all of our senses. Nature does. Exactly. And there are other settings that may not do that in the same way. And um, I just wanted to add that too. Oh, that's um, a good point. What you're saying is it, it's, it's one of the few things that is tangible that can, nature being, um, that can touch all of our senses. As, as opposed to some other things. So any, I interrupted you. Please carry on. No, I, I think you make an excellent, that's an excellent point. And uh, um, there, there have been times in nature, um, you know, I can, I can remember all kinds of little vignettes uh, standing at the top of a Rimrock Canyon at dusk up in the wilderness in, in, up in Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and looking out over miles of, of cloud banks and, and uh, the cold air and 
just feeling uh, my hair standing on end, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't just the beauty. It was the presence of something. And I, I think that's, you make a good point. Uh, I've also found it in, as I said, uh, sitting down with people who are not like me in some way or another, who, who, who we don't share a common background or common life situation and connecting with, them, you know, and that connection, that connection uh, is to me, it's God. It's, it's God at work. So I, any one, one moment, I, you know, uh, a lot of people can point to a single moment uh, that changed their lives. Uh, as a lifelong, as somebody who was born into a Christian family and uh, has been reared that way. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes there have been times when I felt like, gosh, I, I sort of missed out or something. <laughs> you know, if, if I'd been born in a different situation and it had some kind of aha moment in my teen years mm -hmm. or whenever it was, uh, you know, I've as I remember as a kid hearing other kids talk about this, like maybe at camp or in church and, uh, you know, nothing like that ever happened to me. Uh, I'm not, I don't regret it necessarily, but uh, it's been, it's just been a constant string, I guess. Of, yeah. Of, uh, I like, I like moments. that. Yeah. I like that. I I'm enriched by those big transformational moments in individuals' lives. I'm also enriched in hearing where God is speaking in a very, in a variety of ways, but all throughout the days and the weeks and the months and the years. And it's just this ongoing presence that in the moment and in recollection, you can name it, uh, yeah. name yeah. that presence. Right. And it doesn't have to be flashy or great or grand. And it can be flashy and great and grand. For some people, it is. Yeah. yeah. But there's a, um, I, I guess, going back to one of the things that attracts me to the faith is the importance of humility. And, and there's a humility in just kind of uh, moving from moment to moment to moment to moment. Uh, where you experience the presence of God and and uh, and not necessarily having a single big aha moment. Yeah. Um, so that that uh, appeals to me. Well, I wanted to read a quote from you that came from the Cumberland Presbyterian Magazine, and um, this was an editorial. You had an editorial in the magazine, and you called it. Um, uh, as I see it. And my, my question that I like to ask each guest is, you know, what is, what is the church getting right and, and what is the church missing? I know that's a loaded question, um, but you had written in, in your last editorial, here's what you said, as I see it, while resistance to change may not always be a bad thing, we ought to be engaging in some serious soul-searching when fear of change becomes an existential threat to who we are. We keep trying to put new wine into old wine skins, fearing, I suppose, that the new ones just won't look as good. That fear, in fact, may be the most serious challenge we face as a church. You wrote that a couple years ago, yeah. and and with my question, as a church, as a Cumberland Presbyterian Church and the Church Universal, what are we getting right? And from your perspective, Mark, uh, what are we missing? Well, you started by saying that's a loaded question, and I think it is. First of all, I think we're getting a lot of things right. You know, I look at uh, it just in, in uh, our denomination alone, when I look at uh, 
couple of ministries that stand out. Uh, Room in the Inn there in Memphis. Uh, the um, well, shoot, I'm going to mess it up. I think it's the Laundry Ministry. Uh, Sacred Sparks. Sacred Sparks. Uh, uh, Lisa Cook's thing in Nashville. Um, the Burrito Ministry that. Uh, um, Murfreesboro or wherever that is. Yeah. I, I look at ministries like that and uh, we are getting a lot right. Um, and we need to continue that. Um, I think we're getting some stuff wrong too. I'm certainly not a um, an expert on church growth or, or even church contraction. I one of the most disturbing things to me, uh, disturbing facts to me, uh, that has been disturbing to me for a number of years. If you look, uh, and I did this once uh, while I was with the uh, communi- uh, communication ministry team. If you if you go back through all of the uh, uh, annual yearbooks, back to I. Th- I think late 50s, early 60s, you find that uh, every every year with only a handful of exceptions, no more than four or five exceptions, I think, maybe not that many, uh, the denomination has shown a decline in uh, membership. Now, that's, in in a sense, that's not that unusual because, uh, and it's not, certainly not confined to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. What it tells me, though, is that we're missing something. You know, the optimist in me has to believe that if we knew what it was, (laughs) (laughs) we would have fixed it a long time ago. Today, I think, um, you know, and we've missed various things in the past. Mm. Uh, In the 60s and early 70s, it was... uh, uh, being slow to uh, realize the importance of of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and and of of not being afraid to take a stand on those issues, public stand and say, this is wrong or this is right. Um, More recently, the uh, issue, I think, uh, there is to probably no one's surprise is the uh, LGBTQ uh, issue. And for whatever reason, and I cannot for the life of me figure it out, we've we've got a, a number of people who all of a sudden, after uh, you know, a couple hundred years of being a denomination that was really built on, on being inclusive, and on um, being being open to different interpretations of scripture and so on and so forth, all of a sudden we've got a number of people who who seem just dead set on adding exclusions to the church, um, and it just it makes no sense. As I said earlier. Um, I'm a fifth generation Cumberland Presbyterian. And and by the way, I, you know, this cradle to grave Cumberland Presbyterian stuff. Uh, I mean, I mentioned it just just because I am. I don't think it I don't think it matters that much. Um, but I, I but I say it to to make the point that from from the day I was well, not the day I was born, but from the day I was old enough to start learning about this denomination of which I'm a part, uh, that's been one of the things that that uh, stood out to me, was this was a place, this was a denomination, this was an expression of the Christian faith where we, we, we could, uh, it was a big tent. Hmm. And, and what we things like interpretations, differing interpretations of scripture were I won't say meaningless, but they were secondary to the inclusiveness 
of the of the church based on uh, love. You know, trying as hard as we can to get to as as pure a uh, an expression of love for other, uh, and ex- especially for other as in um, people who are outside outside. Hmm. Um, so, I, you know, the, some of the recent news, uh, the there's a, apparently a group in West Tennessee Presbytery wants to split off from West Tennessee Presbytery because um, they simply they simply cannot abide uh, the inclusion of people that, who are who are not like them. Um, I think that's I think that's wrong, and I think it's uh, the kind of thing, the kind of closed-mindedness, the kind of fear. To go back to the quote, I think that is based in fear, fear of things that they don't understand, fear of, of fear of growth in a way. You know, we're we're supposed to grow in Christ. We're supposed to, um, uh, in my mind, never become stagnant in our faith. Why there is this this uh, movement towards embracing stagnancy, I don't know. And it, it makes me sad. So I think that's, but in the larger sense, uh, your question, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What I think what we're doing wrong is we're missing opportunities to demonstrate to the world that we're we really living out this love, this unconditional love and acceptance, welcoming anyone, whoever, whosoever will, into the faith and fellowship and leadership of the church is uh, um, by by. Putting that aside, trying to be exclusive there, I think we're missing some real opportunities. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid that if we don't come to our senses, it's going to hurt us even more than we've been hurt in the past by that kind of uh, fear. When the church is facing challenges or uh, growth spurts or, or growth stunts, We'll just say when the church is facing challenges, historically, and from your perspective, what are good steps to take in facing those challenges? What works? What helps the community of faith move forward? Wow, that's that's a good question too. Uh, yeah, we're we're tempted. Uh, one thing we're tempted at times. Uh, you know, it, uh, we we are aware of our flaws and our mistakes and our warts and things like that, and we can identify them. But there there does become a time and place where it's like, okay, this is who we are, complex and messy, and yet there's still mission and ministry to do. How do we move forward? You know, when you ask that, the first thing that popped in my mind, and I'm not sure what to think about this, (laughs) but the first thing that popped in my mind is uh, the importance of good leadership. Um, And I'll kind of explain that a little by telling sort of a story, not not really a story, but... uh, yeah, kind of a story about about my dad's ministry. Uh, I mentioned earlier his his work with denomination, but shortly after uh, they moved to Memphis, he took up what was then uh, a stated supply position with a small church down in North Mississippi. By all accounts, by his accounts and, and others, uh, this this little church out in rural Red Dirt, Mississippi, in the 1950s, was pretty much was was peopled by pretty much the kind of people that you would expect. Somewhat uneducated, although that's not a lack of education is not a crime, but but uh, some pretty virulent racists. Um, and people of that nature. This 
that's about as far from who my father was as you could get. <laughs> uh, even even when I was, uh, I used to go fairly often with him. Uh, he, he preached two Sundays a month down there. It was a very small church. Um, and I would go down there uh, with him. And even as a, a child, let's say when, when I got to be seven, eight, nine, ten years old and, and started becoming aware of such things, even I could see that at least some of the people in this community were, again, about as far from what I felt a Christian should be as, as you could get in terms of wanting to exclude somebody who was not like them. My dad, pastor, I said it was a stated supply. He often joked it was the longest stated supply in history because he didn't leave there until 50 years later. Wow. <laughs> uh, he was he was never never called as a full-time pastor. Um, and he's, as I say, he served church. He was like two Sundays a month, three Sundays on, uh, and they had a fifth Sunday. But the, the thing that, caught my attention, catches my attention, is that over the course of 50 years, and this had a lot to do with his, his talent, I believe, as a, as a minister, uh, over the course of 50 years, those people changed. Those people changed. There was a, um, you know, he didn't go in right away and, and try to change people, but through loving them for who they were, through guiding them slowly but surely through the scripture to a more complete understanding of what it was to live as Jesus lived. Um, by the time he left there, that kind of attitude had largely, very largely, mostly dissipated. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there, were, there were families in that church that were several generations old, had been in the church for several generations. And by the time he left, uh, signs of this, this uh, tendency to exclude others, exclude people who were not like them, was just about gone. It was a remarkable transformation. So leadership, the right kind of leadership, and uh, pastors, Sunday school teachers, people who are willing to patiently lead the congregation to a, a fuller understanding of what it is to live like, like Jesus Christ. Um, now you can get into all kinds of questions there about, well, where do you get these people? Do they have to have gone to seminary? Do they have to pass some kind of litmus test? Uh, those are difficult questions. I don't know. Uh, we've had a number of, of you know, too, too numerous to mention a number of great uh, leaders in this denomination. I think back to people like Hubert Morrow and uh, E.K. Reagan and uh, Tom Campbell over in East Tennessee, people who uh, are exceedingly wise and uh, have, a, have or have had uh, just an outstanding, deep understanding of what it means to uh, live as close as possible to the way that Jesus lived. I, in, in a way, I'm kind of surprised that that came out as the first thing, because uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not always a, a one to I'm not a follower necessarily uh, by nature. But so, I think that's well, I think that's something that's important. Good leadership and then the uh, the wherewithal and longevity for slow and steady change can yeah, help, yeah. help the church through challenging times. Well, so that that last part, slow and steady change. Uh, there's such a thing as being so slow <laughs> that you miss out. Being True. so slow that... Uh, uh, death overtakes you, mm. frankly. I, I, you know, how do we as a denomination, as a church, 
um, speed things up? I'm not sure. Um, that's a good question. I'm just, I'm not sure that I can answer that. Yeah. I think um, the church needs more authenticity and, and honesty, specifically to society at large, and to be readily to admit that um, we don't have all the answers. We've made some terrible mistakes historically, yeah. presently, and um, yet we humbly continue to serve this wonderful God and learn more with each and every day and just invite others who want to go along on the ride and learn more about this God uh, through Jesus Christ. And, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, something you said there, um, we, several years ago, actually now, I guess it's been a couple of decades ago, one of the big things in the Christian faith was emerging, emergent Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, reading several things that Phyllis Tickle had written, for example. Some some of the ideas expressed in emergent Christianity are valid, some maybe not so valid, I don't know. But I think one of the messages was that um, the church, you know, we have talked for, in our own denomination, we've talked for decades about church growth. You know, how do we grow churches? And yet, in a way, I think it's almost as if we're afraid to grow. We, we, want, we want to grow, but we want to grow based on uh, an understanding of, of the world that we live in that's based 50 years ago, 100 years ago. 200 years ago. And that's, that's simply not sustainable in my, in my view. Uh, the world changes. Our response to the world as Christians needs to change. Uh, within, within the confines of the Christian faith, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, the principles of the faith change. No, uh, they don't. They're steadfast. But the way that we respond to the world can change, mm. driven by, really driven by those principles and driven by getting rid of the fears that we have of things that we don't understand. Yeah. Well, to, to push back, let me ask this question. Is church growth the end game? No, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think church growth, as we, as is popularly popularly understood, is the end game, or is the is the ultimate uh, goal. Uh, that's missing it completely. Uh, there are a number of examples of ways to to get tremendous church growth, if that's what you want. Uh, you know, you can look at these mega churches out in Texas or Florida or wherever they might be, and there's, there's people who know how to grow a church uh, in terms of membership. So no, I don't, think, I don't think church growth in terms of numbers is the goal in itself. I do think that if we can... F- uh, to the extent that we find ways to show people the uh, just the incredible joy and benefits of learning to um, live as, as much like Jesus as Jesus did, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that we can do that, church growth, in quotations, will not be a problem. It'll be a byproduct. The, the fact is, there are plenty of instances, plenty of cases where people are drawn to a church, not not because of uh, you know fancy ad campaigns or, or uh, uh, strategies put together by church growth experts or not, 
But people are drawn to the church because they find acceptance and they find love, unconditional love. And, um, you know, just just try to imagine somebody who's in a, a class that that is uh, typically excluded or ostracized. It's been all kinds of number, all kinds of classes of people. Uh, but they find a group where, hey, we don't care uh, about this difference, this thing that makes you different from us. We love you as if you were our own brother or sister. People are drawn to that. Who wouldn't be? Yeah. Who wouldn't be? That kind of takes us back to where we began the conversation. And again, this wasn't planned, <laughs> but that emulating and expressing how we understand our faith. You live that out in my observation to these two strangers who were in transient, who were hungry. And the four of us walked down to the waffle house for a breakfast. What better way to express the love of Christ, but over breaking bread and sharing time together and listening to somebody else's story. You know what, TJ, to go back to that, uh, my recollection is that uh, those two people had some kind of awareness, uh, and because I believe they asked about it. They asked about who we were. They had an awareness that they were dealing with people from a church. Did they know about Cumberland Presbyterians? No. Heck, they might not have known that much about Christianity in general. I don't know. But they had an awareness that the people they were dealing with were somehow connected, had some kind of connection to a church and to the Christian faith. I don't know if that guy and that girl ever set foot in a church after we after we parted. I, I don't know. What I do know is that when we parted, they knew. They knew that there were these two people who were connected to a church who didn't care what their story was. I mean, in, in terms of it didn't matter what their story was. They were interested in who they were as people. Mm. They were interested in, uh, in helping them in, however they needed help. And that made an impression. I know it made an impression. Did they ever come back and say so? No, but they didn't have to. Because all I all I have to do is engage my empathy and put myself in their shoes, and I know, I know that that it made an impression on them. Perhaps it made an impression enough an impression that that uh, at some point later on, they walked into a church somewhere uh, to see what it was all about. If that happened, hopefully it was a church where people welcomed welcomed them with open arms. Uh, regardless of what their story was, of where they came from, what their past was. Mm. Mark, two questions. One, what are you reading today? And what are you writing? Um, well, I'll answer the second part first. <laughs> I'm not writing as much as I need to. Uh, uh, I've done a lot of uh, Back in my former life, I spoke of earlier, I, I did a lot of feature magazine articles, things mm-hmm. of that nature. Uh, I have dabbled in poetry some. More recently, I've been trying to work on uh, uh, some little short stories and a couple of essays. Uh, that was, you know, I enjoyed the Cumberland Presbyterian. Uh, and as I said earlier, Probably a mistake to view it quite the way I did, but uh, uh, I felt like, you know, maybe part of my call is to try to help others see things a little differently. So anyway, answer that part is I'm not writing as much as I should, and uh, uh, I I plan to do better at that. Uh, As to what I'm reading, I'm, I'm actually... As we, as we, right now, uh, I'm rereading a book uh, by 
a guy named Mircea Eliada, uh, who is a, uh, I believe he's a Romanian anthropologist, uh, Myth and Reality. Another book that may be well, more well known that he wrote was uh, The Sacred and Profane. Had a long interest in myth and uh, myth and the function that myth plays in, in culture and in our lives. I've uh, I just recently finished a uh, couple of uh, uh, Steinbeck books. Again, I have a habit of reading <laughs> books that I like. I'll read them multiple times but um and because of uh because of some of the things that are going on in the denomination right now i also recently uh, uh, picked up the confession of faith and just gone through that a couple more times just to you know just to see did i miss something here <laughs> <laughs> for extra credit. Hey, I just wanted you to know I'm reading the confession of <laughs> yeah. for extra credit. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, uh, on that front, uh, you know, related to what we were talking about earlier, I've, I've heard or, or read of people saying, well, the confession of faith says this or says that. And, you know, I didn't remember it saying that. So I went back and and sure enough, at least this time my memory served me well. I, you know, what 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 they were saying was their interpretation of what the confession might be saying. But uh as far as I was concerned, what I was reading was something entirely different. Um anyway, uh that's that's some of my reading materials recently. I one of the next things I want to get to is uh, I, I sort of jumped to these things over the last year. I've read, uh, gone back and and read, and actually read for the first time a couple of uh, Carl Jung books. Mm. I've had a fascination with Carl Jung, his take on religion and on Christianity in particular, mm. um, and, and wrapping up. Uh you know, psychology, the soul. It's a really interesting, yeah, yeah really interesting yeah, read. Absolutely. Well, Mark, for those who wanted to continue to follow you on your faith journey, uh, where would you like to point them to? Is Do you have um, a Facebook page or Instagram I I... or anything like that where folks want to uh, reach out to you? Uh, without giving away your phone number or your address, is there anywhere anywhere else that you'd like to point people to? Well, if if anybody's interested, I do uh, have a Facebook presence. I I have uh, engaged on Facebook a lot less often here uh, recently than than I did for a while. I I'm uh, finding it less and less useful other than to keep up with a couple of people that I know. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, although I don't really post on Twitter very often at all. So uh, as I said earlier, I'm not really a uh, much of a follower, and I, I don't really expect people <laughs> to follow me. Okay. So we can find Mark J. Davis on Facebook and Twitter with a little bit of searching. Mark, I thank you for your time. Thank you for your example of discipleship to me in the encounter that I shared. And thank you for your service to, to the church. And uh, thank you for being part of this podcast and sharing your faith journey. Thank you, TJ. I was glad to do it. and. Uh, um... Thank you for listening to this conversation with Mark Davis. If you enjoy Cumberland Road, subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or your favorite podcasting site. And now, let me leave you with some words from Mark Davis in his last editorial in the Cumberland Presbyterian Magazine. So I'm off to nowhere special. 
I'm pretty sure that it's a place populated by people who need good news and a lovely light, and I've got plenty of both to share. It also has a fiddle, a writing desk, streams to fish, a woodworking shop, forests to hike, and bicycles to ride. And it has my family, who have sacrificed a lot so that I might answer this calling. Thanks again for the opportunity to be a little more of who I believe God created me to be. Now I lean forward to the next crazy venture beneath the skies. Thank you for listening.